It's Ebro in the Morning with Laura Styles and Rosenberg. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Ebro in the Morning, Laura Styles, Rosenberg. We have our friend Jamel Hill back on the program. She yeah. has a memoir called Uphill, Jamel Hill. Uh, she's got our friend Gab Union on the back with something. Uh, Soledad O'Brien, whom I love, Sonny Hostin, Tamron Hall, Tarana Burke. Um, a lot of people have really supported you on this book, and I see why after uh, opening it up today and skimming through. Because your story as a woman uh, navigating your beginnings to where you are now is, uh, I mean, nothing short of amazing. Uh, considering the way your story begins in this book. And you start this book, I mean, it comes in hot, scorching, which, I mean, Detroit, childhood, mom, you know, everything mom was dealing with with men, uh, the the poverty that you guys were dealing with, the the drug addiction, alcoholism, just all of it. Um, I, wanna, I wanted to start there because how freeing was writing this memoir for you? And had you written these words or gone through some sort of therapy to get this stuff out of your mind and onto these pages? Well, first of all, thank you all for having me on here. Good to be back with you. Um, and, you know, I guess I think what was very helpful about being able to put this on the pages is the fact that the issues that I surface in this book were issues that I had not only talked about with my therapist, uh, but also my mother and I have had extensive conversations wow. about this. And her and I talked a lot for this memoir, uh, because there were certain details I needed to know. There was a lot of things I found about out about her that I did not know before I wrote this book. So it was, um, to me, very necessary, very dire that I be as transparent as possible. Because you have to go into it thinking, like, this is my memoir. I'm only going to write it once, right. presumably. And so I have to lay it out there on the table. Otherwise... As a writer, as a journalist, it just would not have felt good. And I know people are very surprised because when we see people, especially public figures, we have we make up in our minds what their origin story probably is based off mm -hmm. the success that they accomplish. Mm -hmm. Everybody assumes that if you're successful, that you might have come from an idealized um, home bringing. And people will understand, like, after they read this, that was clearly the opposite Absolutely. Uh, for me. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was just important that I share mostly to remove that layer of shame, because I know a lot of people can relate to many of the uh, traumatic issues I discuss in the book. And so this is my way of saying to them, hey, a lot of us have been through it, are going through it, still dealing with the vestiges of it. It's okay, and it's fine um, to be able to voice these things, even though um, they can create or have created a lot of hurt and scarring in your life. You, um, if I could, I want to read just this one after, I guess it's up to about page 35 and you've kind of walked through several things with your mom, addiction, you know, um, her dating and the men that she chose to have around even kind of gave us a peek at this point in the book about your grandmother and the men that she had around. Um, but you says you say here, my mother was very leery of having me around men, especially men she dated. She studied how they acted around me. And if her antenna went up, she would wait until we were alone to ask me if that man or any man ever touched me inappropriately. She wanted to know what they said to me. Uh, when she wasn't around, which wasn't often. It seemed overbearing to me at the time, and I was sometimes uncomfortable with the intrusive questions. Her paranoia sometimes made me feel more frightened around boys and men. 
Uh, were they all predators? Were they all untrustworthy? Could I only behave in certain ways around them in fear that I would uh, awaken some predatory instinct within them? It was a lot to digest. To, uh, it was a lot to digest. Then you go into your mom showing signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, and how your mom, I guess, would convulse in some way if you weren't in the bed mm-hmm. with her, and you witnessed this. Yeah, she would convulse in the bed if I was in, in bed with her okay. either way. Okay. Right. So because um, just to give people who are listening the backstory, if you, you haven't picked up the book already, which you should, available wherever books are sold. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, so my mother, she was sexually abused from ages four to 11 by her uncle, who would have been my great uncle, my grandmother's brother. And on top of that, she suffered a very violent, horrific rape when we lived in uh, Houston, Texas for about a year, a year and a half. So all of this trauma was showing up. And really, it was the rape in Texas that set it off. You know, they suspected it was a serious a serial rapist who was mm. in the area who snatched my mother at her apartment complex when she returned home from work. And my mother was very in fear, even though we had moved back to Detroit, we're obviously hundreds of miles away. She had this living fear that her rapist um, would come and find her. And it was heightened uh, uh, traumatically when the woman who lived next door to us in our apartment was murdered. Mm. And mm. So all of this is going on. And so my mother is unable to sleep. That's how she began. Uh, one of the um, pain pills she abused was a, a sleeping pill. Um, and so, and even, you know, she took other uh, pain pills, you know, Tylenol 4s and Vicodins, like other other things she took as well um, that she was able to buy on a street level. And, and this is during a time we're talking about the mid eighties when people really did not know that these were, um, you know, recreational drugs being used. Of course, crack was taking over a lot of neighborhoods right. as it did in Detroit where I grew up. But there was also a very strong market for um, pain uh, killers as we see it with right. opioid right. prices, you know, what's happened today. So anyway, um, so yeah, she would do these very bizarre convulsions. She couldn't sleep a lot. Sometimes she would stay up two or three days, you know, at a time and be dog tired. And she would resort to taking pills in order to sleep because um, she didn't just want to sleep. She wanted to knock herself completely out right. so that a lot of these traumas she had dealt with would not be something she would have to think about. So it was kind of a classic case of self-medicating. Wow. How did how did your mom and grandmother's relationship with alcohol affect your relationship with alcohol? Is it something you think about a lot as an adult? Well, it, it, it's interesting, though, because even though my mother, uh, um, you know, my mother... Uh, socially drank at the time, but that was not her preferred method of self-medication, mm. if you will. For my grandmother, it was. And even for my father, who also dealt with alcoholism and, and drug abuse. And of course, these habits, they make me think about, you know, my own uh, relationship with it. But I always, it never felt like something I was dependent on. Definitely socially, <laughs> something that I do. All right. Um, and so, and, you know, I've definitely gotten it in more than a time or two for sure, <laughs> but, but, um, you know, I, I didn't feel like I had the same relationship with it because it was not a trauma release. I wasn't trying mm-hmm. to cover or mask something, avoid something. Um, I wasn't trying numb. to numb any kind of pain or anything like that. So I think I had, uh, a much different relationship with it. Like I wasn't one of those kids. I drank one time in high school 
And that was it. And I didn't really start drinking until I got to college. I didn't have a fake ID, any of that. So it's just like, it was never one of those things where I felt like I had a negative relationship with it necessarily. Jamel, was your family supportive? Were they okay with you being, you know, with the memoir and you being honest about your life? And because, you know, not everybody's okay when you start talking about personal business, especially when it's not pretty. But how did they you feel know, about it? And this is going to sound like more of a callous answer than it than I mean it to be. I'll give it more context, but I didn't really care. You know, to be honest, because like, I, I think, um, especially since, you know, to give you a little bit of the backstory, how this memoir kind of came to be, this was not the first book I ever intended to write. I never intended to write about myself. Uh, I didn't choose the memoir. The memoir chose me. There was a lot of interest in the publishing world. And I made the decision once the book, um, once my book proposal went to auction, which means a bunch of different publishers bid on it. And I was able to choose the best home and, and offer for me. Once that happened, I decided the only way that this could be done, which I felt in a proper way, was to um, do it so transparently. Now, I think it was really helpful that my mother, that she was really the central figure. Her and probably my husband were the only two central figures whose feelings about it I really cared about. My mother empowered me to tell my own story. She said, hey, it's your story too. Mm. You know, she has been... Uh, drug-free for decades now. So she really felt like by me talking about these things, telling some of the details in her life, that it would be a testimony for others about what you can come through Absolutely. even in the dark. Yeah, even in the darkest of days. Now, not everybody in my family is happy with this, okay? So, but these were... The people who are not happy are not people whose permission I sought anyway, if that makes any sense. And likely people who haven't even dealt with unpacking their issues so that we can right. so that there's a generation after them that, you know, because I think that's where a lot of us live in a space now, especially, you know, me at 47 years old and growing up in the 80s. And as you mentioned in here, crack and you talked about your mom and your father and these things that kind of. Uh, plagued many black households and many black communities. Right. Uh, and just dealing with this. Uh, unprotected world around black families, right? Like we were, were very much uh, victims of a society that didn't give a shit, right? And so people were trying to figure it out without the proper tools and without the proper understanding of what actually took place in the generations leading up to the 70s and 80s, right? And so yeah. our job now is to do what you're doing and yeah. make sure I mean that our generations that follow can talk and speak truth to power and can talk about, you know, traumas, triggers, and all of those things to hopefully help generations to follow. Well, the, the interesting thing about that is that, um, you know, I think about how my grandmother would have received this book if she were alive, because I think her generation especially represents that cloak of silence that was over many families, many black families in, in particular, because, because of the generational trauma that we have experienced um, as a people, as individual families as well, there is this idea is that you just push through it. You don't have time to complain. You don't have time to unpack. You don't have time to mentally understand how these things are affecting you, uh, be it the things in, within your, phone, your own family or the wider societal and institutional racism that we are up against literally all the time. You don't have time to deal with that. And what happens is that I noticed that of my grandmother's gen generation, their only survival tool they knew was silence. Right. That was it. And that was why my mother's relationship with my grandmother was unhealed 
even up until her death. Mm. Oh, there was love there. They certainly, you know, um, were very close in, in many regards. My mother lived, you know, 15 minutes from my grandmother. Aside from the time that we lived in Texas, my mother never lived more than 15 minutes from my grandmother. And so with all that being said, it was that cloak of silence. It was that refusal to talk about and unpack these things that I think um, really destroyed parts of their relationship that were never able to have any kind of rebirth or it was never able to grow again. And so I would encourage people, especially with the older generations who've experienced things that we don't even know about, as painful as it may be, I think it's important that we talk about those things to not only understand our family history, but have a fuller and wider picture of who our loved ones actually are and not who we fictionalize them to be. Well, you know, my, my white mother, uh, who had her own uh, crazy upbringing, uh, being a child of immigrants and living in an orphanage, I know when I would ask her to tell me stories or she would be telling me stories or I would recount incidents of my childhood to her, things that I remembered that she would not want to retell or retalk about. Her response would be, so what are you saying? I'm a bad mother? Right. I'd be like, no, I'm saying we went through some shit and right. we made it out on the other <laughs> right, side. Right, right, you know right, what right, I mean? Right. Like why? And so to what you're saying, Jamel, there is also this layer of parents wanting to be perfect. And they think that that's the best path forward is to, as you just pointed out, not acknowledge the shit. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Jamel, here in the book, uh, you say, um, and I just wanted to read this for the audience. This is in chapter three. Uh, you're talking about your your mother's pattern of drug binges. It was her coping method. Or you said, I. Uh, it was her coping method, which she established long before I was ever born. My mother tried heroin for the first time after my grandmother left. Uh, let her brother Edward, the same person who had molested my mother, come stay with them. I imagine that my mother probably felt terrified. Rather than face the prospect of living in such close quarters with her abuser, my mother ran away from home. During her time away, she started regularly snorting heroin, not only wanting to forget what happened to her, but also heartbroken that her own mother chose to comfort an abuser rather than protect her own daughter. My mother had nowhere to turn. Her father had abandoned her. I only knew a few things about my grandfather, and most of those details indicated he was an awful man. His name was J.C. Hill. Uh, he was a full-blood Choctaw Indian who grew up in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. He was a drunk who once tried to molest my mother during one of his rare visits when she was a young child. So not only your grandmother's brother, her uncle, but her own father. Yeah. 
No, I mean, it was, and, and that story, by the way, about my grandmother, or about my mother, excuse me, when she started snorting, snorting heroin, I did not know that until I wrote this book. Wow. Uh, she, that was something she'd never shared, even though my mother had been, I guess, uh, you know, pretty frank about, you know, why she chose to, uh, to take drugs um, and, and, you know, other incidents that we experienced together that we were able to talk about, but I never knew what her drug origin story was. And when I found it out, uh, it just made so much sense. And mm -hmm. just as much grace as I've always extended my mother, you know, she's apologized so many times, almost to the point of annoyance. So I'm like, stop apologizing. Okay. You know, I've, I've been able to, to put a good grounded perspective on these things and deal with these things. But because my mother, you, you know, you mentioned about like, you know, parenting, a lot of times parents want to uh, pretend like they're perfect for their own children. I understand that because they don't want their kids to worry. I totally get that. But my mother being open about her addiction, even being witness to it, saved me because my mother never, ever made it seem like addiction was cool, like this was something right. I should be doing. She never glamorized anything. She did the opposite. And she often talked about how I deserve better and I deserve to have a better life than the one that I had. And she was the one who instilled that ambition in me early, which is why my way of dealing with seeing all these adults in my life make these mistakes and deal with these personal demons was to do the very opposite of everything that they did because nothing about how uh, at times they lived to me made it seem like that was a life that I wanted to sign up for. I mean, even uh, there's a very emotional moment that I write about in the book where my mother showed me crack for the first time. I was right before um, this section. I was going to say, Oh my, yes. you said quote, Oh my God, my mother is showing me crack. Yes. Yes. I know. Probably not the most elegant pose. pose but, you know, I felt like it was effective. No, it was, um, it was. So yes. Yeah. So that was part of why that was her way of showing me a, what it looked like, uh, telling me to stay away from it. And because she never wanted somebody to dupe me, she never wanted me to fall victim to some of the um, situations that she found herself in both as a child and as an adult and as a teen either. She never wanted me to not be street smart and street savvy. And I understand where that feeling of protectiveness came from, but the part that was a struggle for me at, as a kid, and even later when I was an adult, when I thought about it, is that, you know, the one thing that Black kids don't often get to be is actual kids. Right. Don't get to be that. The you know, there's is a, taken that, early. Taken early. There's a time limit that starts the moment we hit this earth. Like, you only going to be able to be this non-threatening person, especially Black boys, for so long. And that is up faster than virtually anyone else. Mm. And so I felt a, a sense of resentment and anger because I was forced and left to deal with these very adult issues and to have this learning curve that was so much different than my friends. And it made me very re resentful and angry. You, um, real quick, one last thing on your mom, because I want to also point out that, as you said, your mom said to you, you deserve a lot more than life had for you early on. Uh, it's one of the paragraphs, and I think it's chapter two, uh, which caught me because, um, uh, let me find it. Uh, oh, here it is. Uh, I died when I was seven years old <laughs> is how it starts. Um, and, and the story goes that basically you were in a car accident uh, on the way to, I believe, CET. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, luckily, everybody in the car, your mom and her boyfriend at the time, survived. Oh, my stepfather. Your stepfather, I tell you. Yeah, survived. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, survived. 
And um, but you guys were awarded, uh, I think, one hundred thousand dollars, which yeah, yeah, which because you guys didn't have health insurance because you guys didn't have it like that. um, All of the money was taken from by the hundred thousand dollars was taken up by lawyer fees and hospital bills. Mm -hmm. And correct. um, Your mom started you a trust fund with the remaining twenty thousand dollars, which speaks to how great your mom was in the foresight, even despite everything going on, your mom wanted to put money aside for you at seven. How did that $20,000 and that affect you in the future? So, um, and, and, you know, my mother often would bring this up whenever family members would try to shame her for her addiction, um, is that, you know, if she was, uh, granted, it was bad enough dealing with the ad- addiction, but if she, if she was as unfit as sometimes they tried to portray her to be, then that money would have been spent. Okay. Right. But um, we only accessed it twice. And again, because it was my trust fund, I had to give permission. And granted, I was young, but I understood the circumstances. That one bedroom apartment that we lived in in Joy Road, uh, which was, you know, as I described in the book, terrible place to live terrible neighborhood, all those things, we use that to move to a better neighborhood. So in my mind, that was, you know, a necessity. And we bought some other necessities that I think my mother might have needed a car at a time. But when I left for college, when I left to go to Michigan State, yes, I still had some of the money left, um, which I think, you know, may have been uh, close to like $10,000 or so that I had, which was a lot to go to college with when you're you know, a, a young black girl coming from Detroit. And while I had been, you know, working, I also had an academic scholarship. So it covered, uh, I had an academic scholarship that only covered uh, my tuition and, and fees. So I still had to pay for room and board. I still had, you know, had to pay mm-hmm. for food, books, all those things. And so that's what the remainder of that money went toward for maybe a year and a half. So wow. it, that's, it, it, yeah, it that's amazing. Wow. It, it did not cover it for four years. It covered it for a, a short period of time. And, you know, I worked, uh, I had work study and, and I worked at my campus newspaper when I got to Michigan State. But yes, some of that actually, it, it lasted, um, you know, something like another 15 years or so. Um, that's amazing. One that's th- amazing. One thing you get into in the book that's super topical right now and I'd forgotten about this, um, was the article you wrote uh, where you uh, just uh, made a, a Hitler comparison, sort of completely mm-hmm. out of nowhere, as you describe right. it, sort of looking back just like a total brain fart moment um, where you thought something was funny that obviously turned out to not be. One of my favorite things about you as a personality is that you have a ton of nuance to the way you cover everything. Um, which is not easy in a world of social media, especially being as big on social media as you are, where everything you say gets really looked at. How did you take in this whole Kyrie situation, um, being that you have experience, understand exactly why these things are wrong, and also understand sometimes the disparity in punishment, it seems, for black people versus white people, like in the story you tell in the book? Yeah, and as I often have to say whenever this incident is brought up, I didn't write about Hitler in the affirmative. <laughs> okay, like it was right, not right, right, it was right. not a pro, pro-Hitler comment. <laughs> so, I can't believe we have not. to say that now, but in 2022, just want to clarify. Just want to clarify so that I made a, a tasteless joke that was directed at Boston Celtics fans. I compared them 
to Nazis. So that is what happened. Hit me twice. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That is why it it, it was for as much as viral could be back in uh, 2008. That is why it it went viral. So, you know, uh, here's the thing. Uh, And there is room for nuance with Kyrie as well. And uh, I wrote about it for The Atlantic. Listen, I watched Hebrews to Negroes. I watched the I watched the documentary because I wanted to make sure I had a complete understanding of what this conversation was. And you don't have to get into this documentary very far. It's eight I mean, minutes. It's, it's, I watched the first seven or eight minutes, and I was like, "Oh, okay, dripping. this is this, this, <laughs> this is wild." Yo, they tripping. It's they went dripping crazy. Anti-Semitism, <laughs> dripping it. Like you don't even have to wait. You got. A quote from Henry Ford, you got uh, denying the Holocaust. This is all in the first 15 minutes of it, okay? So you don't have to even get very far. And obviously, especially with no context, no context whatsoever, him posting the link platform, something that a lot of people did not know about or didn't didn't hear. And it it, again, played on some very destructive racist tropes about Jewish people. And so there's room for that conversation to be had. No, he should not have done it. On the other hand, does he deserve to lose his career for it? No, he does not deserve to lose his career for it. And I thought the punishment, I thought the five-game suspension was enough. The terms that were laid out in terms of him having to, um, you know, pay $500,000 to the Anti-Defamation League, which they do great work, but there was a part of it that seemed very much almost like a stick-up. And I was like, what are we doing here? If your goal is to educate Kyrie, and make him understand why that film is as uh, destructive as it is, then that's one thing to have him meet with with people in the community so they can explain, have a conversation. Um, and, and yes, I get that ex- that exchange, I think, is necessary. But even in that, I feel like there's something that has to come from him mm-hmm. if that's what he wants to do. Like, I, I, it's, I don't want it to, I would hate for it to look like this is being forced on him. Like Deshaun Jackson, after he uh, after he platformed on social media, the Hitler quote, which, as I have to say a thousand times and I have to say on Twitter, Hitler did not say that black people are the real Jews. This is a fake quote. It has been circulating on the Internet for literally years. It's not real, people. He never said that. Yes, Hitler was not. Pro, Hitler was not pro-black. I don't know if people know. That. No, he was not. He was not. I was like, oh, I don't God. know what would make y'all think that he were. He was. Please, for the love of God, Google what he did. People aren't, you guys, people don't read and people aren't (laughs) intellectuals. They don't, but I was like, I thought this would be basic, that in 2022, we would not have to explain that Hitler Hitler didn't rock with us like that. (laughs) The fact that there's, I was like, we got to explain this. Okay, that's where it is. All right, fine. All that, you know, being said is that. um, So you were saying when Deshaun Deshaun put up the quote, yeah. When he put up the quote, like he was able to have some conversations. And I believe it, it was because he wanted to know. And even Nick Cannon, like he has some conversations, too, with people in the Jewish community, because that's really the only way that we can understand to whatever degree you believe that there is a divide between the two communities. The only way that we're going to be able to bridge this divide and gap is by mutual understanding and respect of culture. Uh, We will never win, in my opinion, as black people feeling um, trying to assume our mantle of deserved and necessary respect by denigrating other people. We'll never get there. Like that cannot be the goal. Well, you're also taking, us? you're also taking on the behavior of white supremacy right. when you do Correct. that. Correct. And, 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 and that's the other thing too. We can't mimic white supremacy. Like that's not a game plan for us. And when I see us doing that, 
it's very disheartening for me because there is an old adage, I don't remember who said it, is that the longer you're under the rule of the oppressors, you begin to develop their traits. Mm -hmm. And when I see us developing those same traits, I'm like, hey, now we got We got to be able to take a time out and assess what we're doing here. Mr. C. Mr. C, step swimming. Jadakiss, EPMD, Eric B and Rakim, Method Man and Red Man, Lord Tariq and Peter Guns. Yours truly the curator, the lit digital DJ, Funk Flex on the set. Hosted by Nessa, Ebro, Peter Rosenberg, and Laura Stale. 30th anniversary of Summer Jam. 30% off right now. This offer ends at midnight on Sunday. Tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Oh, you thought we wasn't going to get it right? He's on fire. Now, Jamel, one of the things I don't think that's discussed enough just on the Kyrie piece is the fact that, yes, Kyrie's tw- Kyrie tweeted a link to a movie that clearly had anti-Semitic tropes and just blatant, hateful things in there to a specific group of Jews, mm-hmm. right? But when Kyrie was asked about the tweet was when the shit really fell apart. Right. That's the real big problem here that I think people kind of go, oh, he just tweeted something. Ah! But when he was asked to stand on what he thought about it and what he felt about it, he didn't really have anything there. There was no there there. It was a lack of accountability that was there in the beginning. He was very defiant. And I think, um, you know, listen, this is I have no inside information, but this is just my outside looking in opinion. I do think that there may have been and why the punishment came out this way. It felt like because of last year and obviously people know his stance on on the vaccine is that there was some residual resentment that was at play. Like enough is enough, almost. That was what, that was the sentiment that seemed to come through from from the Nets and how they chose uh, to punish him. But yes, initially he wasn't very accountable for what he did. And then he tried to turn it into making himself the victim. Right, right? Like that people was were miss out. And that was where I, I think a lot of people, he lost a lot of people. Now later, after he had some time to think about it, uh, he had a much more, I felt like, eloquent and accountable response to it. Agreed. But I promise, had that later response been there at the beginning, it wouldn't have been that big of he, a deal. I don't think he ever gets suspended. And people, listen, he is not the first person to tweet and platform something, or rather, I guess it would be an Instagram post. He's not the first person to do that. And and I don't I don't know whether or not he actually watched this documentary. There no, he said he like, said in the initial press conference he was like I read it and watched the books. If y'all go back and look, okay, I thought I, th- I thought he did. I was like I thought he said that he did. I just didn't want to to misspeak there. So you still did it anyway. Okay, that's fine. But a, a lot of people have made mistakes about platforming things. I was also you know somewhat disturbed when he when he uh, reposted a old Alex Jones clip, and yep. I'm just like, <laughs> hey man, like. <laughs> There is a different responsibility that you have given the number of people that follow you. No, nah, I'm a regular and person, for- Jamel. Jamel, I'm just a regular person. <laughs> not a regular person. I, yeah, I, not you a regular know, I, un- person. I understand my commitment and my power and influence to my community, but, but I'm also, also, I'm just a regular, regular person. person. I'm just a regular yeah. person. I should be able hey, to listen, tweet what I want. You're, you're a human being 
Absolutely. Regular person? Not no. the same. I wonder, <laughs> as we talk about this, I wonder if the Deshaun thing stuck out to me. Because I believe Jeffrey Lurie is Jewish, who owns the Eagles, right? I wonder okay. if that was part of the disconnect, is that the Nets don't have Jewish ownership. And maybe Cy did not... He ended up getting too much stuff in between to try to figure out how to handle it. Whereas nah, Jeff Lurie was probably like, yo, Deshaun, we got to talk. They don't know how to deal with Kyrie, bro. I, I think it is more. I don't think it, it has anything to do with the Jewish background. I, and I also think that they were trying to avoid uh, maybe further conflict, if you will, in the sense they gave him some room to try to apologize <laughs> on his own. And that is why it sort of got out of hand very quickly because he didn't do that. And, you know, I think it also should be said of this and why I don't put Kyrie and Kanye in the same bucket. To me, they are not. Like Kanye is very anti-black to me. Like there is no, as far as I'm concerned, like he doesn't exist to me. Like forget right. that dude. Kyrie is, is very different in the sense that you know, I, I, I've done like I, I did a social justice project with him, uh, not last year, but the year before. Like he is a very thoughtful person. He cares about marginalized communities, believe it or not. And I know. No, he's well-meaning for sure. He's very, very well-meaning. So I think there's a certain amount of grace that he deserves that Kanye does not. Well said. Well, and I think the overarching thing, once again, I think our education system. Here in the United States, uh, we see how much of a disservice it does to the population. Uh, the amount of people who just don't even understand the nuances of anti-Semitism. They don't understand the difference between race, racism and bigotry. You have people who are very popular who stop paying attention in school in like the ninth and 10th grade. Like they're just, they, they did not go to higher education. They did not seek this information out and they act like information is actually being hidden from them when they weren't paying attention. You didn't even go read the books. The books have been there for generations. Like it's, it's a conversation that's been going on, many of these conversations, for the longest time. But people well, the, aren't reading the information. To blame. <laughs> it's right. easier to blame. It's easier well, to blame. And, and, and not only that, you have to – this is the information age we're in right now. It's a really different time, a scary time in, in most regards. Because whatever you think, pretty much any conspiracy theory that you have, there's evidence to support it. Evidence as in not like actual evidence – but there's a YouTube video on it. Video on it. There's a whole mm -hmm. website dedicated. That's like it. Yep. so, so people's sort of worse and baseless instincts are being fed That's all right. the time. That's right. So even if you tell them like, hey, um, there are literally dozens of historians that have refuted this quote, and there's no factual evidence that Hitler actually said this. Um, and even logically, when you walk them through it, they're like, no. But there's ten YouTube videos that tell. No, nah, but I true. heard on the Joe Rogan podcast. That, uh, yeah, right. like, well, not only that, their <laughs> algorithm is literally supporting the ideas that they already have. So they're yeah. seeing it over and over again. It's Because it's, that's what they're Googling or that's what they're searching. So it, you can find Same it. Yeah, it's right there in front of you all the time. Jamel Hill, um, what is, uh, I mean, other than all of the writing in this amazing memoir that everyone should go purchase right now uh, with our friend Jamel Hill called Uphill, a memoir. It's everywhere. Go get it. Um when you look at the sports world and sports reporting and sports journalism and the folks who are still on television on a day to day basis, what are you seeing? Uh, and did you see, you know, because I'll be honest, I don't see a lot of depth 
right? It's it's a lot of what we just talked about with YouTube. It's a lot of clickbaity stuff. It's a lot of salacious stuff. Like you know, and obviously that that's what that's what leads a lot of places. But when I first saw you on television doing the Sports Reporters, which was an amazing program where you guys would actually do real journalism and then sit down and talk about it, right? And and, and what are you seeing now? Well, as you know, uh, ESPN kind of ushered in the the whole debate culture of of sport debate in terms of of it being on TV. You know, obviously with the wildly pop- popular success of First Take, which yeah. you know they led to shows like Undisputed and just really a model for how people did things. All shows are not sort of the same. Is that I think if you tune into a First Take, your expectation for that should be much different than maybe. If you tune into, say, Around the Horn or PTI, like those are not all the same types of shows. The entire point of First Take is to be an aggressive debate show. The point of Undisputed with Shannon and Skip is to be an aggressive debate show. And so I still think there's a lot of people on TV who are doing a very good job uh, analyzing issues, not keeping it personal in terms of how they talk about the athletes. Uh, You know, obviously, you know, Inside the NBA on TNT is one of the best shows ever created. There's a fun that's there that people really enjoy. But the part of that I really don't miss is always having to have an opinion about every single thing. Mm. Because eventually what happens is that you will, and and I like to think I kind of avoided this, but what happens eventually is that you find yourself always feeling like you need a take. And if you're searching for the take, you're going to say something probably crazier than you intend to say, right. because you didn't really have an emotional gut reaction to mm-hmm. that anyway. Right. And so you're going to come in and just unbeknownst to you, you're going to manufacture something you don't really feel because you have to have this pressure on you to have something to say. Like there's no I get having done it every day for five years. I did not equally care about everything that we discussed, be it on his and hers or Sports Center, or even some of the other platforms that I did. Um, you know, Sports Reporters was a little different. So it was a weekly show. So it's issues of the week. Right. You, know so you, have much, you had a lot to a lot of material to work with. But the daily shows, like you just would be lying to yourself if you said that you really cared about the future of the Jaguars. Like you just don't. <laughs> so you're like, whatever, you know. And so you might say something more flippant or not as nuanced. And, you know, next thing you know, you're going viral about a take that you don't really you really didn't weren't even that invested in the it's, issue anyways. It's crazy, so it's, Jamel. It's I, I literally it's funny you say that. I was literally thinking earlier, you know, and I I love ESPN. I'm very happy there. But at the same time. I've personally stunted my career because I can't do it. Like I, I don't. I'm not a sports expert, right? I'm not a. I didn't play a sport, so you have to have takes. That's the only way. You're either an expert, you're either Dan Orlovsky or RC or one of those guys who played the sport, or you have hot takes. I can't do it. Like I cannot do what Stephen A. does. He finds something to be hot about every day. Jamel, I'm like, I feel like if you look for it every day, you're just gonna find yourself. Getting in trouble for saying things you don't well, even that's really why they need. pay him a lot of money because he keeps coming yeah. with something every day. Every day, he got gas in the tank. That guy, <laughs> he really does. Yeah, and, and and I just I don't I personally never liked sort of as I would describe it like take down TV. I didn't like I don't you know one thing about me and my former uh, co host Michael Smith is like there was a mutual respect, a friendship that was there. You know, we, that was that existed before we started doing television together. And so when we went into TV um, every day, we did the show. The goal was to have as good of a conversation as we have. My goal was not to embarrass the other person on the side of me. <laughs> right. And so a lot of people sort of get into that 
very um, intense, you know, combative debate talk. And that's never the type of TV I want to That just happened to Skip and Shannon Sharp. And and when I saw that, it was just like, you know, like a lot of people don't understand like what the game is. Okay. And and this isn't to say that I I believe that was a real moment. And, you know, and I, I personally, I, I, there was a lot that I didn't like about it just from, from the clips that I've seen. But what you hear in the background is people cheering, like, you know, not understanding this debate stuff is not real. Okay. Like this is just a sports debate and people are like, Oh, you know, Shannon wanted to come across the table and I can't wait to see what happens next. That's the part they're feeding. They want you to come back the next day so you can see how they react to one another. And it's like a soap opera that plays out. And so, you know, that's part of what that debate culture is. I don't want to be on TV and have somebody who would say to my face and, and totally disrespect my entire Hall of Fame career and that be considered part of what makes <laughs> for good debate. Because yeah, I was like, I don't want to do that. Right. Like, look, t- look, Skip and Shannon have been able to build something from the ground that has become something that is a fixture in uh, sports culture. So I'm not trying to denigrate that. But that's the that's exactly the type of TV I never wanted to do. Right. It's toxic. It's toxic. And it's a, it's a merry-go-round. It's tough. It's tough for sure. Um, your your podcast, Unbothered, um, still going strong. Um, how are you enjoying the podcast space? And and I mean, you're writing for the Atlantic, you're hosting for the Atlantic, you're doing your podcast, um, you have the book. So you're you got a lot of revenue streams here, uh, young lady. You're getting this money out <laughs> yeah. here. But how's the podcasting I'm, feeling? And what do you have coming yeah, and up? I, and always happy to add more. Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> if anyone's watching, if anyone with a if bag is watching. watching. <laughs> Say it. Uh, well, actually, thank you for asking that because it's very timely. Because I'm very proud of the fact that right now, uh, as we're conducting this interview, if you go to Times Square, you will see an unbothered network billboard hey. uh, that's in Times Square. So, uh, you know, in addition to my own podcast, which is Jamel Hill is Unbothered, available only on Spotify, I created with Spotify a a network called the Unbothered Network, and there was a very specific purpose I wanted for this network. Uh, it's a network for black women where black women are the podcasters. Also, it's a black woman led team. And so these are issues that, uh, cause you know, I, th- there were very specific tropes about black women, us, you know, being the saviors, being the mules, and there's a, a total fullness of who we are. So I wanted a network that explored how we laugh, how we love, how we're vulnerable, how we fall down, you know, all of these things. So that's, so we have two podcasts that launched on the network in early November, the Black Girl Bravado, which is homegirl wellness. That's the mm. best way I can describe it. And another podcast called Sanctified, which is uh, faith-based that looks at some very intense issues in the in the faith community, abortion, trans rights, like all like they're getting into it. Uh, uh, that's hosted by Deborah Joy Winans and LaVon Briggs, who, who is a, a pastor. And yeah. they have some very unbelievable, nuanced, funny conversation about what happens in church and the things that they should be talking about in church. So nevertheless, these podcasts have launched. We have a big billboard of all of us ladies at 10 times square right now. So Dope. I'm just super proud at the uh, super proud of the growth, the elevation for being able to take this from just my own podcast brand and now making a network and a home for black women. So I hope people out there support that as well. Jamel Hill. That is incredible. And thank you for coming on the program today too. Thanks. And Jamel. Congratulations. Book's dope. Yes. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. And I just thank you so much for being, um, you know, for giving me this platform to be able to talk about this book, which is like my, yes. yes. You see what's happening. <laughs> and, and, you know, I should say this because another author I know reminded me because she would always say, wherever books are sold. And she was like, what I didn't know is that some people actually don't know where books are sold. Facts. So just, so just so people know, Amazon, yes, you can get it there. Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, uh, uh, Target, all the places where you see books, you can. Buy. Is there? Did you do uh, one? Of, what is that? Audio book? Did you do audio book? Yes, and the audio book version is available on audio, Audible, like all the places. All the places. Well, you know, I yes. work at Apple, so I get my books on Apple Books, and they got go. the yes. audio book right there too. Boom! Good because Audible. Oh, it is? I find yeah. Audible. I find Audible to be very complicated. Like as a, as a system. Oh, really? Okay. I find oh. the credit thing hard to do. So on Apple, you just type in books on your phone. Yeah. And books comes up. It's an app built into your phone. <laughs> All right, Tim. Really All right, and Tim. And then you Cook. search the book that you want, and then boom, you have the book. Audio or or audio or, or written. Wow. Yes. Well, yes, go do audio that. Or written. Do that yes. for Jamel's yep. uphill. Please, I makes a great pre- uh, Christmas gift. It sure so, anyway, does. Thank- Thanks, Jamel. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Jamel. Talk soon. All right, All right peace. peace. All right, take care, y'all. One, two, three, four. Hey, this is Mayor Fontaine. Make sure y'all go check out my episode of Four Minutes of Fire coming out December 4th. It's a good one, I promise. A Hot 97 podcast. Available everywhere. Four Minutes of Fire. New music premiered every month on the 4th. The grass is greener than a dollar bills That's perfect for her because all she know is dollar bills I know a nigga that go and kill and then go kiss his kids Think he doing a good job to hide the way he live But he don't know his son just found that gun behind the fridge Right now he watching someone else crib But shit, who watching his? I do my best to hide these gems all in these 16 Mr. C. Mr. C. Step swimming. Jadakiss. EPMD. Eric B. and Rakim. Method Man and Red Man. Lord Tariq and Peter Guns. Yours truly the curator, the lit digital DJ Funk Flex on the set. Hosted by Nessa, Ebro, Peter Rosenberg, and Laura Stale. 30th anniversary of Summer Jam. 30% off right now. This offer ends at midnight on Sunday. Tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Oh, you thought we wasn't going to get it right? <laughs> 